welcome to Risk Roundup. Along with geospace, aquaspace, and space, cyberspace is a contested common, and its use as a battleground to wage war is rapidly intensifying. This changing landscape of warfare, where emerging cyber weapons have become more lethal than real battlefield weapons, is becoming a cause of great concern. Keeping up with the rapidly growing complexity of the raging war in cyberspace is a challenge facing not only nations' military, but also individuals and entities across nations, its government, industry, organizations, and academia. So as we evaluate the ongoing cyber warfare getting integrated with artificial intelligence and its scope of overall entanglement with geospace, aquaspace, and space, the anonymity of enemy soldiers in the cyber domain and the leveling of attack capabilities, we are entering an era where it seems a new paradigm of cyber conflict and warfare management seems essential. To discuss cyber warfare further, I'm delighted to welcome retired Colonel Dr. Don Welch to his roundup. Dr. Welch is the Chief Information Security Officer and has just been you know, taken over the role of acting CIO an acting VP, I'm not sure if that is still current for Penn State, mm -hmm. yep. also an affiliate professor in the College of Information Science and Technology, as well as the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Welcome, Dr. Welch. We are so honored to have you on this Roundup. Yeah, thank you. It's a, my pleasure to be here. Wonderful, Dr. Welch. So it seems cyberspace is the only domain which is entirely human-made. And it seems to have been uh, created, maintained, owned, and operated both by public as well as private stakeholders across nations. It is changing continuously in response to technology transformation and is not being subject to geopolitical or natural boundaries. So information and electronic payloads are deployed instantaneously between any point of origin and any destination connected through the electromagnetic spectrum and data and information have travel in the form of multiple digitalized fragmented uh, through unpredictable routings before being reconstituted at their you know, destination. So as we evaluate this man-made contested common, how is cyber warfare evolving as compared to warfare in geospace, aquaspace and space, which you know uh, commonly known as land, sea, air and space? Yeah, so I think uh, you're right in that the lines between uh, the battlefield and non-battlefield are really blurred. So as we, uh, we've always had terrorism, uh, but terrorism has gotten uh, more popular as time has gone on. And who is a combatant and who is not have gotten a little bit more difficult uh, to understand. And I think that what's going on in cyberspace is uh, an extension of that trend. So for example, um, in, the, uh, in the United States, the constitution precludes the federal government from taking action inside the US borders, especially the, the military aspects. So the NSA, the CIA, and of course the armed services. So most of the attacks that go on in cyberspace are going on uh, within the US borders. And so it leaves people like the security teams and the IT teams at institutions like Penn State to actually be combatants. Uh, and we, we really, I think, have to go back to the colonial days when uh, there was not a strong federal government in the US and uh, 
defending uh, settlements and colonies uh, fell on the colonists themselves. Uh, so this is really a, a little different way for us to act. Um, there are certainly a lot of constitutional issues about when we can invite the federal government in, how much it can do, how much it should do, uh, and uh, to be able to uh, uh, defend our nation's critical infrastructure. And as you pointed out, it's more than just stealing intellectual property. Uh, it can be a life safety uh, issue now. And then to continue to go on on, on this uh, introductory first question, as you pointed out, the uh, combatants are more and more wired. The uh, soldiers themselves are are carrying, you know, many computers. Uh, all our vehicles are many computers. Back when I was in the army, uh, we talked about the the next infantry rifle uh, was going to have 20 million lines of code in it. The uh, project managers for major weapon systems. They'd show you a picture of a, uh, a mobile artillery piece and say, what is this? And people would say, oh, you know, that's artillery. It's a cannon. It's like, no, it is a container for software. That software is what makes this weapon uh, effective. And so that also is having that effect that uh, non, you know, traditionally non-combatants can have an impact on the battlefield uh, conducting uh, cyber operations against the uniformed military. So that that uh, uh, border has really, uh, has really changed and it's blurred and it's really difficult to draw lines when we like to draw those lines. Yes, that is very true. And uh, there is, you know, complexity of the technology transformation because there is so much progress and development in technologies and everyday technology changes. And this, you know, the hacking industry it's itself is now an industry. It's a full-blown industry. So that creates so much complex challenges. And there is this vicious power struggle, you know, raging on in the cyberspace. And this new cyber battleground is full of unknowns because uh, there are so many significant players and minor players and rules of war and reasons for war are not understood clearly. In, and in this cyber battlefields, the war casualties have been quietly piling up. And it seems everyone that is, you know, individuals and ent entities across nations, its government industries, organizations and academia are being hit and are at risk of being hit. No one is being spared, including common citizens. So it, that brings us a question that how can, you know, anyone be prepared for this new warfare reality? Because we, not everyone has understanding of, you know, the computers or the security technologies or processes. And, you know, most of the common citizens, they are not prepared with this kind of uh, uh, vulnerabilities. And if they are not prepared and everything is interconnected because now we are, internet is connecting not only just the, you know, uh, major corporations, but even the homes and enterprises and everything is getting connected. So how can any nation or how should any nation prepare for this new warfare reality? So I think that, you know, like any complex uh, problem, there are complex answers to it. So it's many faceted on how we'll have to do that. And I think the same kinds of things that are necessary to combat cybercrime are the things that are necessary to combat cyber war. Uh, obviously, nation states uh, and uh, you know, non-governmental um, uh, bad actors, the terrorist organizations and so forth, uh, can bring a lot of uh, technology and expertise to bear but still 
your basic citizens have got to learn how to operate in this more adversarial uh, internet that uh, that continues to to grow. Things like keeping your systems patched, um, having some basic awareness of security and so forth. We when we started driving cars, it was a new technology, and we needed to figure out basic things like. Uh, which side of the road we would drive on, what are the rules for intersections and so forth. And people had to um, become aware of that. And right now those kinds of things are second nature to us. And I think in using um, technology, guarding our security, our privacy, that's gonna have to be second nature. And it's certainly not yet. Uh, obviously we, I work at a university um, and I'm around students. I have uh, young children of my own who, um, know a lot about technology, but uh, but are, are not as concerned about their privacy as possible as I think they should be. Uh, and the question is whether that even matters that all of our privacy is already compromised uh, anyway, and you will never get that information back. But, but regardless of all that, we, we need this awareness overall. And of course, one of my concerns is small businesses. So if a country is going to attack uh, and uh, try to either combine uh, a traditional uh, kinetic type of attack with cyber operations, then uh, they can go after big companies. Big companies have resources. Most of them do a fairly good job of securing their critical infrastructure. But if you want to disrupt, say, the food supply for a region, yes, you could go after the big distribution companies, but you can make a big impact by hitting um, a number of smaller companies that are probably not well prepared. Cybersecurity people are expensive. Um, putting, you know, running your infrastructure well so that it's uh, not vulnerable uh, is expensive. And a lot of small companies have difficulty coming up with the resources to do IT well. The, uh, and, and also just the practical sense of it, if your IT shop is three people, you can't afford a full-time security person. So someone is doing it part-time, they're not gonna be as good at understanding what the threats and what the countermeasures are and so forth. So I think one of the challenges, how are we gonna defend those um, small companies that if attacked in aggregate can have the same impact as taking down uh, a major company that's a major infrastructure provider like transportation or food distribution or whatever it may be that supports uh, that operation. Uh, and then of course, different than cyber uh, operations, there's information operations. And of course we see that in social media right now. And of course, they're not the same thing, but they complement each other. Uh, and uh, we, we have to understand as a people what those informations are, who's trying to manipulate our perceptions uh, and uh, our actions, and be able to you know live in a world where we can understand that. Yes, Many, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. That you know we do need to understand that you know how the misinformation, disinformation campaign is going on, and like you said, you know the nature of privacy. You know while the young uh, children, you know a young generation is not concerned about it, and it seems that the nature of privacy itself is changing nature and definition. But uh, you, you're absolutely right about individuals and small enterprises that, you know, they cannot, they do not have enough resources. So mm -hmm. what, what can be done? You know, not everyone has the resources like large corporations. 
So probably, you know, we need to start uh, focus on how we can have the manufacturers and telecom, infra, you know, companies to incorporate the first layer of security in them. Because if, right now, if you buy any computer or any phone, it doesn't come with any security. So we have to, you know, install all the antivirus and all those kind of softwares. And not everyone is knowledgeable. So why not just make manufacturers install all that and have regular updates? So that will take away the, you know, some vulnerability. And the second thing is telecommunication. That also can be the first layer, you know, because everything comes through tele uh, wireline and wireless networks. So why not have them incorporate a layer of security? So we have to change our approach. And, you know, that certainly is possible if, you know, uh, everyone works together and understand that these uh, risks that are emerging and coming our way are very, very, you know, complex. And we cannot have just, you know, one security solution. We need to have a layered security solution. So, I mean, the rapidly transforming cyber battleground is bringing all of us, the good, the bad, and, and the unknown. And with the world getting immersed in these rapid advances in artificial intelligence, machine learning, it's making, you know, cyberspace and cybersecurity challenges very complex. So while the fundamental reason and goals of warfare have not changed, the way wars are fought indeed have. And is it fair to say that cybercrime or warfare activities through cyberspace is now the most critical national security threat and perhaps ahead of terrorism, espionage and weapons of mass destruction? Well, so yeah, interesting question. You know, still obviously, uh, even though cyber weapons uh, can kill and um, arguably may have uh, caused some death, still it's it's fairly minor. Uh, a, a nuclear weapon obviously would be much more devastating. So I think, you know, in reality, we're much more concerned about nuclear warfare, um, large scale kinetic warfare. We're you know we're very good at uh, uh, at blowing each other up at, at, at large scale. And we, we haven't seen that yet. So I wouldn't say that it is the major national security uh, threat that we've got going on right now, but it's certainly one that we have to pay attention to. So if you look at you know the impact, uh, the number of people who, uh, for example, in the US that have died um, due to terrorist attacks is still fairly minor compared to the number of people who have um, died in automobile accidents. But the impact is much greater. You know, I, I, I like the example of, uh, you know, uh, about uh, 10 times as many people worldwide are killed by cows as are killed by sharks. But nobody sees a cow and goes running away screaming, cow, cow, and, and that. So it's, it's the psychological impact is there. And I think the, um, that cyber warfare has that uh, capability right now with, that we depend on it. Uh, if somebody cuts off the power, like uh, I was um, working with the National Guard in the state of Michigan as we were developing cyber defenses for the state and the uh, National Guard commander, his number one worry was the power gets shut off in Michigan in January. And, you know, and how is he going to keep all those people uh, warm, uh, you know, get them to a shelter where they would, uh, where they could be uh, protected from the cold. Th those, <clears throat> those fears I think are real. Uh, and the, I think right now, the thing that's holding that back is deterrence. So will, uh, uh, what, would a, what would a country do if they were attacked uh, through cyber 
uh, a cyber attack that harms people. And there's been threats back and forth. Um, you know, we think we've seen a case where um, the Israelis bombed a, uh, a Hamas uh, center that was conducting cyber operations against them. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's been news reports of the U.S. penetrating the Russian um, uh, uh, utility system, power system, uh, it, to deter the Russians uh, who have allegedly <clears throat> penetrated the U.S. utility system. The, uh, there have been reports that the Iranians um, tried to penetrate the U.S. utility systems and have done so, so that they could deter another Stuxnet-like attack. So <clears throat> once again, like nuclear warfare, right now it's all at that deterrence stage, and that um, may or may not work. It, it certainly worked for nuclear weapons, but uh, how long will that work for cyber weapons? And I think we see our adversaries getting bolder. Uh, so uh, y y it's uh, it's it's a complicated problem, and it's difficult for our um, our leaders to uh, uh, to figure out how to operate. When I was uh, in the army back around 2000, uh, a cyber attack had the same uh, release level as a nuclear weapon. If the army was going to do a cyber attack, it had to have the presidential approval to do so. Uh, now that's not the case. Um, that's probably a good decision, uh, but still, I think breaking that deterrence uh, is something that should not be done lightly, and I don't think will be done lightly on um, on anybody's part right now. Yes, I agree with you, and you are right that you know we still don't see widespread attack on humans to kill them. You know, so that that is still a relief that you know all these hackers. And, you know, criminals are still having little conscience not to go after, you know, the uh, humans to try to disturb them. But we are not just, you know, facing challenges with the cyber weapons. We are also looking at these rapidly evolving EMP weapons because electromagnetic weapons are also emerging. So and th there are many nations who would like to harm nations that are economically more successful. And that's where, you know, United States, you know, becomes very vulnerable because billions of dollars are invested in developing cyber capabilities to attack financially successful nations like United States. So if bad actors succeed in attacking economically prosperous nations like United States, it will bring a collapse of global economy due to heavy dependence on the all the you know on the other economies. So how to prevent damage to this you know global economy and how to contain the cyber warfare ambitions of these bad actors and especially the, the thousands and probably you know hundreds of thousands of young brilliant people who are getting attracted to you know move towards this uh, the dark side and try to you know create damage because it's a thrill for them so how to prevent that because that is where the biggest challenge is if they don't have the bigger brain power then you know it would be much easier for us to control the situation but it looks like that a lot of young people are you know moving towards that yeah so and, and vice versa there's a lot of people who start out uh penetrating systems who become professionals in the uh, the security field and uh, want to uh, stop uh, those uh, malicious actions. Uh, so I, I think we're always going to have people who, um, uh, you know, who have bad motiv motivations. I mean, I think that's just that's human nature. Uh, you know, just like we're not going to stop terrorists from being being recruited. 
but what we want to do is mitigate their impact. So one of the things I think you uh, brought up earlier uh, in that uh, the devices that we buy, uh, those are, are not necessarily secure. Well, how do we make them that way? Do we regulate that and say, oh, it must be secure? Well, regulation can be effective, but it's certainly not the most effective. The most effective would be if the marketplace said, we want secure devices and people were willing to pay for it. Because uh, for uh, software to be secure, you don't just write it so it works, you have to write it so it doesn't fail. And we write, try to write software that um, uh, controls aircraft so that it doesn't fail or controls spacecraft so it doesn't fail. And that is much more expensive than it is to write uh, consumer software that is just supposed to, you know, supposed to work. And so if we were willing to pay that, you know, for example, the baby monitor that uh, we use uh, to, uh, to watch or to keep an eye on our child, um, would we be willing to pay 10 or 20 times as much for it? But it would be secure because that company that did it would have um, put the effort in to, uh, to do thorough testing, to design security in from the beginning, to pay those security professionals, and to keep that software updated uh, when flaws are uh, are noticed, you know, there right now there isn't a market for that. You'd go out of business. I, even in the the medical device field, we know that is a big problem. And I had been a uh, consultant to um, a company that was going to be a startup to create secure uh, uh, medical device devices, and they were going to build their own operating system from the ground up that would just handle those medical devices, but would be secure because it wasn't built to do other things, therefore not as complex and not as many flaws. Uh, but it, it didn't work. The market wasn't there, even in that, which is a life safety device. So that's what we really have to do is we need this widespread understanding so that people are willing to pay for it. Uh, and I'll, I'll give the example of an automobile. So the automobiles, when I was a child, um, are much more expensive now uh, than they were then, even when you account for inflation. But they are much safer. You know, not only do they have seat belts, but they have airbags. They're they're built better, and so forth. And we have um, a combination of regulation and market. We have automobiles that are much safer now than than they were 40 or 50 years ago. We need to get there faster with software, but consumers have to be educated too, that this, why it's necessary. Uh, and unfortunately that education probably involves a lot of pain and loss along the way. That's just human nature, that's the way we are. Yes, that is an excellent point because education and awareness is the key. And that's what we at Risk Group are, you know, trying to do one step at a time that we educate global citizens, not just, you know, in the United States, but everybody across nations to understand the risks so that they can take an informed decision about what needs to be there and they can support the right initiatives. Now, the, it's not just the cyber weapons we are talking about. We see AI and machine learning capabilities beginning to be incorporated and integrated into cyber warfare. So mm -hmm. how will the malicious code that includes AI and machine learning capabilities change the cyber warfare landscape? What trends do you see? Well, so you're right. Um, we're, we're starting to see malicious software that is controlled by artificial intelligence. 
Um, I'm not sure we've really seen the wild yet in machine learning, but I'm sure that's coming. Uh, but also we need artificial intelligence in defense, right? So people are gonna be, they, they have to focus on the things that they're good at, which is you know really difficult problems and thinking through those solutions, but they aren't good at reacting quickly and, and properly. So whenever we can automate a process, and if we happen to use artificial intelligence as part of that automation, then we will have a, a, a better response. But, but the important thing is machines can do uh, processes that we can define much faster than people can. And so including that is, is gonna be absolutely uh, key. So we see the speed, you know, when um, we talked about the advanced persistent threat years ago and the idea that uh, an adversary, especially a nation state would come in, penetrate a network, take their time, move around and be in that network for a long time, stealing what they, what they can. It, that, that still is a threat, uh, but we also see these attacks that are automated, uh, smash and grab, if you will, where they go and uh, they're not uh, worried about being discovered. They want to quickly hit the payload, exfiltrate the data, or do whatever um, uh, malicious things that they want to do, but do it faster than the defensive team can react. And that's where we need automation to be able to, to do uh, and, and AI is certainly one of that. I, um, uh, I, AI, of course, is an important buzzword, as is machine learning. Machine learning is actually a little different, but um, AI to me is a programming technique. How do we put um, the process and logic in there? And artificial intelligence is a way, a different way of doing it uh, that we can capture more complex processes, uh, but it's, it, it's very effective. Um, not necessarily uh, are we at Skynet and the Terminator yet, but uh, but still uh, effective program uh, programming techniques and especially uh, in attack and in defense. Absolutely, and you know we are almost seeing an algorithmic warfare, and these algorithms are transparent. And who develops algorithm, where it is developed, there is no way to know that. So there is no way to control. That's what, you know, we just addressed in risk group that, you know, we need to create some sort of algorithm naming and identification system so that once it becomes a security threat, then we do need to know what that algorithm is so we can track it and we can contain it. But there needs to be some sort of naming and identification system of algorithms because right now we have no idea who is, uh, you know, developing algorithms where they are developed and for what purpose so that is where the bigger challenge is because they are all transparent and we will never know you know what is included with the hardware that we are buying or software we are buying because we have no capability to see that what algorithmic code is you know embedded in that and what is the purpose and goal of that now the blurring boundaries of cyberspace and uh, all these different spaces aquaspace geospace and space and growing threats from cyberspace means that the current and emerging warfare challenges will need to be fought using more tools than those furnished by the conventional military and you recently proposed to create a cyber militia would that meet the needs of individuals and entity across uh, nations, government industries, organizations, and academia? So I think the idea of um, uh, a cyber militia is uh, one way that, that we can do it. And the, the idea being that um, these people are trained, are well-trained. And right now um, we've got some government programs in the U.S. that are uh, supporting that. Uh, 
I was involved in the state of Michigan, they, uh, they had a National Guard unit and they had what they called the um, cyber, uh, I, I forget what it is, the Mich uh, cyber corps, the civilian cyber corps. Uh, anyways, uh, so the state would provide training and uh, provided them an organization to share best practices. Uh, the, the, they got, because they were trusted and had been uh, uh, checked, uh, their backgrounds checked and so forth before they were brought into the system, they would have access to um, uh, more threat intelligence uh, through the Fusion Center. And that I think was a, a, a really far reaching and uh, a good start towards uh, towards the kinds of things that we need. But the idea uh, it, that individual organizations will fight this alone, uh, I think is a losing proposition, that we have to be able to share threat intelligence quickly. We have to share best practices. Uh, we have to uh, work together. And there are a lot of different uh, things uh, organizations and people who are working towards that end, you know, the ones that work will be the ones we put more resources into, but um, you probably have heard of the Cyber Threat Alliance, uh, security vendors who are sharing threat information with each other so that they can protect their uh, customers faster, I think is a, is a great idea. Uh, so that militia won't look like uh, people in uh, with muskets and tricolor hats uh, mm -hmm. As, as it was back in our colonial days, but it will uh, look like a whole, a very different thing that is vendors and security people. Um, higher education is uh, a nice environment that we are, don't, don't really compete with each other. We don't, you know, yes, we compete for students and research grants, but um, the collaboration is really high. Uh, you know, I can talk to CISOs from especially other Big Ten universities. We meet three times a year. We talk on the phone every month and we um, trust each other and keep each other up to date. And those kind of relationships are going to be uh, really important. The, uh, in the U.S., the FBI's InfraGuard tries to foster those relationships regionally. And we're going we're gonna to need more of that to work together. One of the things that uh, you mentioned uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, is uh, the idea of not knowing what's in our software and the idea of the supply chain security. And that really is a, a big deal. And you see um, the world wrestling with that now uh, with Huawei. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, 5G uh, is coming and it's going to be critical. And we are going to, uh, the idea that just cell phones are on it is going to be gone. We're going to have cars and we're going to have devices. And so we're going to have all these life safety systems on this network. And the uh, the Five Eyes intelligence agencies <clears throat> have questioned whether we could trust that supply chain. And code is so complex. Uh, you've seen some arguments of some people trying to uh, figure out whether or not uh, code has back doors in it or it just has a lot of security flaws, so forth. But uh, the way we currently operate, we can't, we can't say that it is. And it might not even be the company that is necessarily being malicious, but if people uh, infiltrate the company, they can put uh, malicious code inside of a product 
and we find cases of malicious software being found on uh, you know consumer devices and phones and so forth. We find it in the you know the Play Store and uh, all those different kinds of uh, uh, ways that malicious software finds itself into the supply chain. You know, so much software now is built uh, from open source coming from GitHub and so forth that uh, people depend on it. They don't, it's expensive to go and examine all that code and understand the security implications of it. Generally speaking, people uh, aren't incentivized to do that. And so therefore um, they're not doing that and we can't trust that supply chain. So it, it is, it, it's gonna require uh, a huge effort across many areas where we can uh, operate safely in cyberspace. The Russians and the Chinese are uh, doing their best to be able to um, uh, disconnect themselves from the internet. Uh, maybe the idea of one internet for the entire world was um, a quaint idea that historians will look back at and say, yeah, it worked for 50 years, but uh, ap after that there will be closely monitored entrance and exit points and um, you know the idea of the free and open internet will go away I, I i don't know but certainly the way it's designed right now it's very difficult to uh secure it and i think we will see other developments of other types of networks that can be secured yes very true no there are complex challenges and there are you know trends emerging which uh... Uh, tells us that, you know, maybe China will, you know, cut off and, you know, have their own internet. But the challenge is that even if nations cut off their internet and have the internal, you know, network, but uh, the companies are, you know, not just in one location. They have, you know, their presence in uh, so many different locations. They're all transnational. So how do we, you know, uh, contain the security risk that emerges? And the point that you made about sharing threat intelligence, it's absolutely essential. But because of legal liability, corporations are not doing that. So what we at Risk Group, you know, proposed is that we need to develop a framework that is security-centric, security-centric risk management framework that would make every organization accountable for the security risk that emerges. Now, if the security risk are something of a nature that, you know, just causes independent risk to their corporation and it falls within their corporation boundaries, then they are supposed to manage that. And if they, if there is a chance that, that those security risks are going to cross their corporate boundaries and impact other corporations or industry, their industry or other industries, then they become interconnected, interdependent, and they are accountable to share that information because it, without sharing the information of interconnected risk, we are just making the risk bigger and bigger. And, you know, we are facing huge complex challenges because of that. So we need to bring accountability in the security infrastructure and we need to create that framework which gives an ability to everyone to share the information that they need to share. Now, there is other framework that we have, you know, proposed is that, you know, if we are going to remain in one internet, then we do need to come up with a global framework in which we need to identify risk similarly independent risk and interdependent risk. And if the risk falls within a country, let's say, you know, China, then they, if that, if it impacts only China, then they, it will remain within 
within their walls and you know they they will have responsibility and opportunity to manage those risks but if it's going to impact other countries then they need to notify that they need to share their information so we have to make everyone accountable and unless we develop a framework that is not going to be possible just telling everyone that you should share information they are not going to do that unless mm-hmm. the legal liability because we have to incorporate the accountability and legal liability into the framework and that is something we all have to uh, think about it because the, without doing all those things it is not going to be possible to manage the complex interconnected security risks that are coming over we any organization they have a right to manage their independent risk the way they want to but as you know as soon as it becomes interconnected then they have the accountability and responsibility and legal you know uh, responsibility that they have to share that information but under the less you know that is a topic you know of huge topic to be discussed you know in a separate risk roundup but uh, let's talk about the uh, law of armed conflict under the law of armed conflict cyber warfare must be distinguished from phenomenon such as cyber criminality is that distinction clear when does a security breach or attack becomes a warfare event and how are cyber conflicts evaluated currently and who is evaluating them because we need some markers that tells us that this is not just a cyber ter- terrorism or this is not just a cyber um, criminal event or cyber kidnapping or cyber you know all kinds of uh, uh different nomenclature but that it has become a warfare event so what are the markers that tells us that this has become a warfare event now yeah so that's a really great question and the difficulty of attribution in cyber attacks complicates that even more on uh, whether it's a, a criminal or or a nation state um you know determining in which nation state uh so when does it cross the border into uh into warfare so you can look at the intellectual property loss um to china over the last decade or so and can you say well if if they had a bunch of spies that were over in the US and they stole all these paper this paper and brought it back would that be would that cross the threshold of war would would we be justified to respond uh, by sending warships over to china to do that that's uh, a question that i don't know if you look at the uh russian interference in the us election and european elections uh, over the last few years did that cross the threshold uh you can look at and say well how much you know how effective was uh were the russians in uh either promoting brexit or the election of president trump and you look at the amount of ads they bought or whatever and say boy um our campaign uh teams really have to get with it if they could influence an election with only spending that much money um when ours spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars more and uh, are were ineffective so it, it's it's a really good question uh i think you know uh, like with elections if we saw uh an attack where a foreign nation actually manipulated the voting results i think most people would agree they'd probably cross the threshold uh in in the information operations clearly you know uh, we've made a lot of threats but we haven't uh attacked uh Russia you know we've put sanctions on but we haven't um kinetically attacked them we don't think that that necessarily crossed uh the threshold and i think at this point you, you can't draw bright lines you have to take the whole thing in complex if you cross the threshold from 
a cyber war to kinetic war, there are real, um, uh, the implications from that are, are huge, right? When we're talking um, armed conflict and we never wanna go into armed conflict uh, lightly uh, because the, uh, you know, it, both sides are going to, uh, going to lose, even the winning side is going to suffer uh, from doing that. So I think it's good of our world leaders to be restrained before you go there. But we've got uh, basically four uh, elements of national power, diplomatic, information, military, and economic. And military should always be the last resort. Uh, and I think what we really need to do is you talk about a framework so that we understand this. And I know uh, most nations have got uh, people, policy people who are trying to determine this and make recommendations. Well, what's the appropriate response? Is it diplomatic? Um, is it uh, information, a counter uh, information operation? Uh, is it sanctions? Uh, what can we do and uh, can we affect change or deter them from taking that action uh, in ways that are short of um, kinetic warfare? And uh, certainly we want to we want to, to do that, but I think um, when we don't take appropriate action, then uh, people are inspired to be bolder. And so we have to hope that we've got the right, uh, the right leaders who are making the right decisions and they've got the right advice so that they can deter that activity, but not, um, uh, not make the consequences so um, so light that uh, it encourages other you know, nations to continue their attacks. And so really hard, I think, to draw a, a bright line. Uh, you know, it took us a long time to come up with uh, uh, the various conventions on uh, land warfare. Uh, and even those, uh, you know, were not always followed. But generally, OK, it worked, it worked pretty well. Uh, but we... Um, uh, but but that those are hard frameworks to come up with. And I think it's far more complicated than our current battlefields are uh, to uh, develop those frameworks. So right now, I think we have to depend on our nation or uh, all the leaders of the world to uh, exercise the right judgment and how to respond and how to deter. Yes, very true. I mean, I have been talking about that integrated uh, security centric risk management framework for last three years. And still, no, it's not going anywhere. So you are right. It's not an easy, you know, a solution. You know, you need to make sure that right people come on board and, you know, decision makers understand the criticality of developing that. I'm proposing that. I'm discussing that with so many decision makers. But let's see where it goes. But other question I have is that do nations have sovereignty in cyberspace for judging the lawfulness of cyber activity? Is there a legal framework regulating these warfare attacks? So I, I think most countries uh, will say that they have sovereignty, that they, um, they can control. So if you, uh, you know, are a visitor in China and you do something that's e illegal online, you know, they have no problem arresting you and uh, you suffering the consequences. Uh, the, the practicality of it is, you know, we have indicted uh, Chinese uh, nationals for cyber attacks in the U.S. and Iranian nationals Russians, and sometimes we catch them, but usually they, if they don't travel to a country that has an extradition treaty with the U.S., 
Um, they are never going to face any punishment. So in a practical sense, that sovereignty is, uh, is pretty thin. But the idea that, uh, that you control your uh, aspect of cyberspace, I think there's some good uh, ideas behind that, right? So uh, a lot of activity that happens in cyberspace, uh, countries want to um, in enforce their own values uh, there. And is, is that okay? Well, you know, we might not agree that we think you should have freedom to information or whatever, but, you know, I think that's a, uh, you know, an issue for, to handle um, in the, uh, in totality and not just in cyberspace, whether North Koreans should have access to information through the network or, or whatever, if our countries decide that they should deal with it, that's something to be taken in total, uh, totality. But in cyberspace, uh, we, we came up with this idea that the internet would be free and open. And we're finding that, well, there's problems with that. Do we want, you know, jihadists to be able to recruit over the internet? Well, we prefer they not. Well, okay. You know, do we want child pornographers to be able to apply their trade? No, we don't. Well, you know, okay, where do we draw the line? And nations need, I think, to be able to do that because enforcement is essentially got to take place um, in the real world and not necessarily online. Uh, so I think that idea of sovereignty is is there to stay for a while. Uh, and uh, it really like what we see with uh, China, basically trying to really control their internet <clears throat> and control access to information inside their country. That's a trend that we might have uh, that continues. And uh, we may see that even in uh, liberal democracies where uh, we don't like what's going on in the rest of the internet and we try to control it. Realistically, it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's far too complex. Too much infrastructure is built out. Uh, and I don't think we put the effort towards it. But, you know, maybe 20 years in the future, that's where, where we'll be going. It seems so. You know, I agree with you on that. Now, when we consider, for example, uh, any crippling or, you know, I mean, uh, any fact of cyber operation that can disable entire systems, for example, electrical power grids or telecommunication infrastructure or any other critical infrastructure, uh, the or, or say, you know, uh, air defense system for any nation's military, then the magnitude of the impact falls within the realm of warfare. I mean, that is warfare if the critical infrastructure is attacked. So what are the legal framework guidelines for such scenarios if there is a system-wide attack, you know, financial system, telecommunication system, you know, military, air system, or, you know, um, electrical power grids? What, how do nations, you know, go forward, you know, with warfare on that? Is there any legal framework guidelines for such scenarios? Uh, so theoretically, uh, it, in warfare, you are not supposed to target uh, civilian only, uh, you know, a, a civilian only use, right? So, uh, but the I think the way uh, the interpretation of uh, the laws of land warfare have evolved, uh, if you attack the power grid that is supplying a factory that is making weapons, well, that's okay. Uh, the strategic bombing programs of, of World War II and so forth. And as long as you try and minimize collateral damage to non-combatants. 
but the idea that you can attack the entire um, uh, industry, industrial base that supports the war effort is, uh, in, you know, in the um, concept of proportionality is uh, critical there uh, in, in terms of responses that we have proportional response or we use uh, whatever to minimize the collateral damage to non-combatants. So I, I think once again, it, it, it's, it's nice to have a framework. And I think the current laws of land warfare are the best we have right now as we evolve that. Uh, but we've got, you know, all those four aspects of national power. And I think the principles that we want to de deter uh, further aggression or, you know, aggression in the first place using those instruments of national power, uh, I think is critical and keeping it at a minimum uh, is, is minimum level as possible and a proportional uh, level is possible. If a country can only respond with nuclear weapons and so it's either nothing or everything, then that's a, a bad situation. So being able to impose sanctions, being able to uh, have countries work together to impose sanctions uh, so that they can be even more effective, that's the kind of thing that I think we need to continue to be able to do. Uh, it's the things that we've already been trying to do to deter uh, aggression in uh, kinetic space. So uh, I, I think there's, there's more of that, um, but I, I am reluctant right now for us to draw, try and draw bright lines. And I think the reality is that most of our policymakers um, have a thin grasp of the technology. They have, have been working in it. They haven't necessarily grown up with an understanding of it. Uh, I, I've spent a lot of time working with um, military leaders and uh, politicians and trying to uh, explain this. And they want to take what they understand about the kinetic world, use it as an analogy for the uh, for cyberspace, and it's not quite the same thing. Uh, and so I think until we get um, leaders and advisors who have a better grounding in, in the technology and can keep up with the rapid changes, that it's going to be difficult to come up with an effective policy. Um, I don't pretend that uh, I, I can come up with them. I'm, you know, the point where I will throw my opinion in, uh, but it takes a lot of smart people working uh, really hard, I think, to, to work together to figure this out and try and come up with a framework where we can continue to thrive as a world. And of course, you know, the easy solution is uh, if we all got along better, it wouldn't be such a threat. But, you know, probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but, uh, but it is, I think, important that we keep those diplomatic um, relationships open, try and keep those uh, economic ties, uh, try and understand each other, and uh, you know, basically reduce those reasons for conducting cyber war. Very true, very true. I mean, that the uh, bottom of uh, uh, all these problems is that we all are still working in silos. There is a need for collective approach, like you said, you know, that we all need to, not one sing, uh, single person or organization can, you know, come up with the effective policy, uh, approach to policy or uh, recommendations, but we have to work together 
and understand, you know, bits and pieces that we can take from everyone and make it a very secure framework or, you know, very effective regulations, which is becoming very difficult day by day because the technology transformation is so rapid. So to come up with an effective regulation in a timely manner is uh, looking, you know, very complex. Uh, but it is possible to work together, like you said, and uh, come up with effective ways so that we can... Uh, if we all work together across nations, then we can work on the real challenges facing the future of humanity because there are a lot more complex challenges coming our way where we need to focus our attention and we don't need to waste our energy on this useless and unnecessary warfare that is happening in cyberspace because we, at the end of the day, if we cannot secure the future of humanity, then not, none of these matters. So having said that, well, how would you like to conclude the state of cyber warfare today? And what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially the young, brilliant minds who are getting so, you know, caught up into uh, getting into the cyber hacking and, you know, doing all the crimes? What would you like to tell them? Well, I think uh, it, so uh, warfare, uh, we used to say, uh, you know, in the infantry is, uh, you know, seconds of sheer terror, you know, punctuated by um, hours of, of boredom. And being on the defense can seem very boring, very tedious. Uh, you know, unlike on TV, you know, it, it doesn't look that exciting. But, but the real hard, productive work, security work, um, is rewarding in that we are protecting our digital way of life and our, our way of life. So we value um, our liberal societies where we respect human rights, respect the rights of all um, sexes, ethnicities, and, and so forth. And that's something that is worth protecting as well as our, our economic well-being. And so for people to uh, go into that field, work hard, put their talent and their intellect towards defending this and making it a, a safe way where where we can do the great things that the internet has opened up for us and make the world a better place. That uh, may not be as rewarding minute by minute, but in the long term, I think it's something you can be very proud of. Yes, very true, very true. I mean, it has given us a lot of benefits and the tools necessary to connect with everyone across nations and do collaborative work, you know, and come up with uh, sharing, you know, frameworks and infrastructure. So that that is a great blessing. Only thing is, you know, we have also given tools to these, you know, wannabe criminals who want to destroy society. I mean, if they can focus their efforts and energy into managing the complex security risk coming uh, towards the future of humanity, that would be more you know, effective and efficient way of using their brilliance and uh, uh, their energy levels. But having said that, thank you so much, Dr. Welch, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on cyber warfare and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today and helping raise awareness of this critical topic. We thank you for that. Thank you for having me on, Jayshree. Wonderful, Dr. Well. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, aquaspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. 
it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two all three concepts feed into each other we believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations tradition becomes our security so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace let's manage the existing and emerging risk together for more information on the risk roundups to watch the risk roundup video audio podcast please go to riskgroupalc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share until next time i'm jayshree host of risk roundups signing off see you next time thank you